All right, well, as we continue today with our study of the books of First and Second Samuel, we come today to Second Samuel chapter 6, and with it to the incredibly important and incredibly sensitive and personal topic of our worship of Christ our King. And I say of Christ our King because as we've been seeing all year long as we've been moving through these books and these stories about Saul and David, we've seen that these stories are not just about Saul and David. These are stories about King Jesus and me and King Jesus and you. And here's what we're going to see about our King today. We're going to see that our King's opinion of our worship is the only opinion that matters. That's it. My opinion of my worship doesn't actually matter. Your opinion of my worship doesn't actually matter. My opinion of your worship, and we're going to see at the end of this message, we're not to really form opinions of one another's worship. We're not to sit in judgment of one another in worship. But, you know, really, I mean, it just, it doesn't matter. There is one whose opinion matters, and his name is Christ. And here's what I want to challenge you to do this morning, and it's a little uncomfortable. It's opening yourself up. It's saying, you know what, Lord, everything about me belongs to you, including my worship. So here's what I'm going to do with my worship, even though it makes me nervous. I'm going to lay it before you. And I want you to give me your opinion of it. There's a judge of my worship and of yours. Do you know who he is? It's not me. It's not you. It's the one we gather to worship. We pick up our study today in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and in that kind of a posture. We come to verse 1 where we read that David, who in the very last chapter, what? Was anointed to be king, not just now over the, the tribe of Judah, but over every tribe of Israel, and then who immediately established his capital city in Jerusalem. And following that, David then gathered all of the chosen men of Israel, all of his warriors, all of the mighty men that the Bible talks about and that surrounded David, and he gathered them together. Why? Because the Philistines had gathered together to come to war against him, and so he goes to battle against the Philistines. And what happens? He runs them over. Why? Because God is on his side. And what is the Lord called in that story? He is called the Lord of the Bursting Forth. He bursts forth against the Philistines. That's what happens immediately before we pick it up today. Where again we read that David, and now all of the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 were saying, he gathered again, but this time he gathers not for war. He gathers his men this time for worship. So he gathers them all, and it says, And David arose, and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the golden chest, which was manufactured and fashioned in the days of Moses according to the very strict, very particular, very detailed instruction of the Lord God Almighty, and which served then and in David's day as well as God's earthly throne. It's the place where, as we'll see, he was said to dwell invisibly between the cherubim. It was named after him, now we read. It was called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned upon the cherubim, meaning the gold cherubim, which were fashioned and attached to the lid of this box. And so David is seeking to bring this earthly throne of God up into his new capital city, and his reasons are wonderful. His reasons are good. His reasons are very noble. David has established Jerusalem, which is in the center of this nation, as the administrative center of the nation. He wants to establish it now also as the religious center of the nation. The new king of the newly formed nation is going to bring the throne of God up into the newly formed capital city, and by doing so, to send the message to the entire nation that they are, in fact, one nation under God. I think we'd all have to agree that's a noble endeavor. 
But if you did your personal worship this week, you know that at least the first time that he tries to do this, yeah, it doesn't go so well. And it falls apart, by the way, right here. Verse 3, it says, And they, meaning David and the Israelites, carried, they transported, is the point, the ark of God, but how? On a new cart. Now, why did they carry it on a new cart? Because they thought that's the best way to do it. Because in their opinion, it was absolutely fine to do it that particular way. Hey, you know what? We've got to take it a long distance. We've got to go up hills and down hills and all that kind of stuff. Just put it on a cart. We'll make it a new cart. It's never been used before, so it hasn't been possibly defiled. It's a sacred cart, if you will. But put it on there. We'll have the oxen pull it. We'll have a big parade, and we'll have a huge worship service, as we'll see here in a second. Do that. And in our opinion, that's okay. All right, here's the problem with that. Um, In God's opinion, that's not okay. And God takes worship a whole lot more seriously than these guys did in this moment. And I think maybe more seriously than we. God had come to Israel already in His Word long before David. He had said, let me tell you something. There is a chosen people in this people called Israel. We're going to call them the Levites. They come from the same tribe, and I charge that group within Israel to know absolutely everything about how to rightly handle all of the holy things of worship of the people of Israel, including the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, here are a couple of things that thou shalt not do. Thou shalt not transport it in any other way except carried by the Levites on specially made poles. That's it. So that rules out any kind of a cart, doesn't it? And beyond that, he says, thou shalt not touch it. And there's no little footnote that says, unless there's some kind of an emergency, in which case, all right, it's fine. No, don't do that. So these people knew that, or they were at least charged with the responsibility of knowing that. They surely became reminded of it not too far into this story. And the Lord took those things very seriously. And what's happening in this story, it's very subtle. The narrator is going, hey, um, do you remember the last book of Samuel? If you go back in the Samuel narrative to like February for us, to 1 Samuel 6, you find the story of the last time that the cart, or the ark rather, was being transported. And who was it being transported by? It wasn't the Israelites in that case. It was the Philistines. And how did they transport it? On a new cart led by oxen. The narrator is saying to us in this story, it's subtle but it's clear, he's going, look, despite David's good intentions, despite David's noble thought here, David and the Israelites in this instance are behaving like Philistines, and so now what will God do? God will treat them just like he did the Philistines in the immediately preceding chapter. He was the Lord of the bursting forth, was he not? He will burst forth now against one of them. Again, we read, David and 30,000 chosen men of Israel and all of these other people from Judah and Israel as well carried the ark of God on a new cart just like the Philistines had done the last time that it had been moved. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill and which is where it was left immediately after the last time it had been moved. And here's something too is important. Abinadab and his two sons, as we're going to see, were Levites, almost certainly 
which means these guys were the part of the people that were charged with the responsibility of knowing all of the very strict regulations and stipulations and so forth about how to handle the holy things of the Lord, including the ark. And they were charged then also with making sure that got carried out. So in all of the people in Israel who should have known better than to put this thing on a cart, for example, or even to touch it, these guys were at the top of the list. And so now we read about the sons of Abinadab. It says, And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, which was riding on the new cart, and Ahio was before the ark of the Lord. So he's leading, I think, the oxen is the idea. And Uzzah was apparently behind the cart or maybe walking alongside of the cart right next to the ark. And now picture this worship service. Imagine it. Hear it in your mind. It says, And David and all the house of Israel, tens of thousands of people, were celebrating before the Lord with songs and with an organ, because that's the only way to do it. Is that the only way to do it? You know, some of my fondest memories as a kid involved my grandmother who played the organ. She was an incredibly musically talented person. She was born one of eight children, uh, the son or the daughter rather of a um, Dutch Christian reformed pastor who had a career that spanned 63 years. It's pretty amazing, really. It's humbling to me to even think about that. And so when she was about three, her older sister Mary began to teach her how to play the piano, and she was sort of a prodigy, and so she caught on real quick. And by the time that she was 13, she was playing the church organ in church every single Sunday. And she played pretty much every Sunday for over 60 years herself. She was awesome. And every summer, my parents would send me off, for obvious reasons, to go see my grandparents. Go, just go, dear God, take him, take him. Put him on a plane by himself, we're fine. They did. It was better than Christmas for me. They lived on a river, they had a couple of boats, and they let me use them both when I was like nine. It was insane and awesome. Every Sunday morning, we would wake up early and we would go to church. We would drive up into Holland, Michigan, which was close, and and that's where their church was. It was a Christian Reformed church there, a small church there. And my grandmother was the church organist, and so we'd have to get there early, and she would warm up with the choir, just like we warm up with the worship team before our services as well. And I just remember sitting out there and service after service after service, watching my grandmother, who in my eyes was like a rock star. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever sat at an organ, but it's like walking into the cockpit of a spaceship. You know, how do you play that thing? All of the switches, all the buttons, all the different keyboards, all of the foot pedals, all of that stuff. And I remember very clearly and vividly her many times she would look over at me and she would just smile as she's playing and everybody's singing and she'd wink at me, you know, and she's saying, I love you, Tom. And it was awesome. And then after church, we would go back to their house and she would take out this elaborate meal that she had made the day before. Now, why did she make it the day before? Because Sunday she believed, and I would affirm this. Sunday was the Christian Sabbath, and she was to take a break on this day of rest and worship from her ordinary labors, which usually included preparing food and so forth. So she prepared it all the day before, so all she had to do was heat that dude up, and we would eat it, and then my grandfather would kick back in the lazy boy, and he'd turn on golf, and he'd fall asleep, and my grandmother would go into the front room where she had her own organ, and I would sit on the bench next to her for hours while she would just play and play and play and play. It may surprise you to know that I love organ music. 
I really do. It's absolutely beautiful. But it's not the only kind of instrument by which to lead worship. It may be your preference, and hey, I'm cool with that. But your preference is not law. I'm challenging you today. I'm asking God to challenge you as He's been challenging me all week. What does David do? It's like David goes into the instrument room of Israel and says, hey, what do we have in here? Well, we got this, 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 we got that. You know what? Stop the... Just just bring it all. And they bring it all. They come out rejoicing, and in this worship service, they use lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and, and cymbals. And when they came, now we read, to the threshing floor of Nacon. Good grief, what's with the detail? Why does that matter? Because threshing floors were on a hill. The top of a hill. And the geography of this story matters here and later in both places. The narrator is saying they have come to the crescendo in some sense of this worship service thus far at least. And what happens? Okay, let me just describe it for you and then I'll read it for you. What happens is the oxen that are pulling the cart upon which the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, is riding stumble. And as a result of the stumbling, the ark, or the cart rather, kind of tips. And as a result of the tipping, the ark starts to slide. (laughs) And there's Uzzah. Wrong place, wrong time, huh? Here's the guy who has been trained in the regulations of God. He knows not to touch this. And he knows not to put it on a cart too, but he seems to be very careless about what he knows. He seems to be very quick to go, you know what, Lord, I know that you think it ought to be carried on poles by the Levites, but as one of the Levites, i got to tell you, we don't have like a big line of people wanting to carry this dude up and down the hills and up and down the hills and the many miles or however far it is to go all the way into the city of David. You know what the hill looks like there? We're going to put it on a cart. We're going to do it, and we'll make it a new cart, so you'll be happy with that. In this moment, Uzzah's heart no doubt was filled with horror as he's watching the ark of the Lord, which he knows shouldn't have been on the cart in the first place and feels responsible for, sliding off. And he's thinking to himself, good grief, it's going to hit the dirt. And so he assumes, well, then this must be an exception. This is one of those moments when I can put my hand on the ark of the Lord, and he also assumes that his hand is somehow less polluted than the ground. Wrong in both occasions. And the Lord has been treated by the Israelites, well, like He was by the Philistines, hasn't He? And what did He do against the Philistines? He burst forth in the previous chapter. And He burst forth against Uzzah here. It says, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of the ark of God, for the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled. Guys, that's the language of fire. It was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error in assuming that under those circumstances there must be an exception to the way that God would be treated in worship in this case. And so then as a result, Uzzah died there beside the ark of the Lord. And so then also did this entire worship service involving all the who's who of Israel, 
the king and his cabinet and everybody else. All the mighty men, most of the people, thinking there was a bit of a lesson learned here. And then we read, and David, who later meditates and figures it out, was angry because the Lord had broken out. No, that's a bad translation. Because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place, we're now told, was renamed. It was called Perez-Uzzah, meaning the bursting forth against Uzzah. We're now told here, to this day, that's what it's called. The idea is there is a monument to the kind of reverence and respect that we need to bring to the worship of the Lord our God. They renamed the place that for generations they might not forget it. But who is the bursting forth done by here? It's done by the God whose opinion of our worship alone matters and who apparently takes his worship really seriously. Really seriously. So I'm challenging you, right, in your worship? How seriously do you take it? Let me start with this day. How seriously do you take this day? Because I happen to agree with my grandmother that this is a day that is sacred. And I get that there's debate about that. Should it be the seventh day, which is Saturday, or this day, which is Sunday? I get that. I really do, and I respect that debate. But I will tell you that the overwhelming majority of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years has celebrated the Christian Sabbath, and in various ways I understand that. On this day, which commemorates the day upon which Christ rose from the dead, and I think that we can all at least agree that it is a day in which we are to take a break from our ordinary labors and in which we are to worship the Lord our God, in which we are to look back upon His deliverance, what He has done for us and what He will yet do for us. The reality, as we sang today, that in the end, it will all be okay. We'll win. Why? Because we've already won and the Lord Jesus Christ. God takes this day seriously. Sounds kind of self-serving coming from the pastor, doesn't it? Oh, the pastor's just being self-serving. He's trying to get me to come to church and stop looking at my cell phone. No, I'm really not. I'm trying to come to you and to say, you know what God thinks of this day, and it would be neglectful of me, wrong of me, malpractice by me if I didn't do this. God takes this very seriously. And how seriously then also do you take what you do here? Like when you show up, all right, well, whose opinion of your worship are you most concerned with? How many times do you leave and go, Jesus, you know what, you're my king. What do you think? How did it go for me today? Like, were you pleased? Were you, was it good? Did you appreciate it? Was What do I need to change? All right, so the Lord whose opinion of our worship alone matters and who clearly takes our worship very, very, very seriously bursts forth against us and creates a monument in Israel to this reality by doing so. And then we read again, verse 9, that David was afraid of the Lord that day, and I would have been too. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? There's a holy reverence, a holy fear that develops and takes hold of David's heart in regard to this matter of worship and in the handling of in this case, the ark of God. And so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside, ironically, 
to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and I say ironically because that guy was a Philistine. And what does the Lord do for this Philistine? Probably a God-fearing Philistine. Certainly God-fearing after this. Hey, do you want the ark of the Lord? You know what I'm thinking? I'm going to pass on that. Why don't you give it to my Philistine neighbor and see if he'll take it? In light of what just happened, I mean, David's going, I, you know, I'm afraid of that. We've got to figure some things out here. It's fascinating. The Lord does for this Philistine what David had been hoping he would do well for David and, and for Israel. Everything's backwards in the story. It's all ironic. It says, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And then we read in verse 12, And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of this Philistine named Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark. And so David, who has now had time to reflect on this matter of worship, and who, as we'll see here in a second, figured out what the problem was, or at least said, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. We've got to stop substituting our opinions for how things can be done and you know, what we're most comfortable with and, and what's most expedient for us with what the Lord actually says in His Word. Let's get it right this time. Okay, well, David went and brought up the ark of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with what? With rejoicing. And what I want you now to do is to visualize again this worship service, and specifically what I want you to focus on is its enthusiasm. And I say that because some would say, I think that's a little more enthusiasm than I'm comfortable with. And I don't know, maybe I'm one of them. Are you one of them? Notice what happens. It says, and when those, it, it says, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, here it comes, rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord on poles, just like it was supposed to be born is the idea, had gone six steps, David stopped them and sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Get the idea? And then they picked it up and they went another six steps and he said, whoop, wait a minute, we're doing another sacrifice. And then they picked it up and they went another six steps and he said, you know what, I brought a lot of animals, we're going to do another sacrifice. And then they picked it up and went another six steps and he's going, good grief, this is killing my budget, we're going to do some more sacrifices. And then they picked it up and went another six steps and they're like, holy cow, how long is this worship service going to be? And they did some more sacrifices. I think they got the message all the way into the city of David. Every six steps. And then we read that David stood stoically before the Lord with all his might. Then we read that David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he did it even though his wife was watching, even though his kids were watching, even though everyone in his cabinet was watching, everyone in his administration was watching, everybody in his government was watching, everyone who was a who's who in Israel was watching, all the elders of Israel were assembled and were watching, and the people of Israel over whom he was a brand new king. I mean, talk about a moment when you could have felt self-conscious. They were all watching. 
He danced before the Lord with all his might. And not only that, but while he danced, he was wearing a linen ephod. So it's, it's a reference to his clothing. It's a priestly garment, which no doubt was constructed in such a way to satisfy the standards of modesty in the culture of his day. And those standards of modesty, for example, would have felt as though it was immodest. They would have been violated if a man was to bare his legs in some way. Well, amidst all of his jumping and dancing, guys, at least some part of his legs before everyone, everyone were bared. And his wife, at least, as we'll see it in a second, thought it was indecent, thought it was irreverent, thought it was unbecoming, thought it was wrong. David danced, and as he danced, he was wearing a linen ephod, and yet notwithstanding the potential opinions of everyone, this dancing David and all of the rest of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with dancing and with shouting as well and with the sound of the horn. Okay, can you imagine all that? You're seeing it in your mind? Now, let me ask you this. What's your opinion of that? Is it indecent? Is that irreverent? Is the only way to reverently worship the Lord to do it quietly? To do it with an organ? To do it with a hymnal? And incidentally, let me give you my opinion of hymnals. I think that the hymnals that we have and that I grew up with contain the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most theologically sound music ever written in the history of man. I really do. And not today, but most days we do quite a few of them. But I'm pushing you a little bit, aren't I? You know I do love you, right? And I don't have an agenda other than to free you from your own opinion and that of everyone else and to cause you to look and to focus on the opinion of your king. That's my agenda. And however he would have you worship, do it. That's the point. So what is your opinion of that? And then secondly, practically speaking, like how many of you would sign up for that? Like, oh, I would feel totally comfortable with that. Okay, you know, not me. And I I need to own that. You know, I grew up in a very conservative Dutch Christian Reformed family. Uh, I was not, you know, emotionally stilted as a child. I was not denied warmth or affection. My parents are very loving and affectionate and all of those kinds of things. But let me say this. We are a very intensely private family. Where it happens for us is on the inside. We're not expressive by nature. And then add to that the fact that I then grew up either in a Christian Reformed church or mostly in a Reformed Presbyterian church in Miami, where if you had raised your hands in one of our worship services, we honestly would have thought you had a question. Like, because <laughs> there would be no other way that it could make sense. It's like, you know what? We're singing Amazing Grace, and Bill has a question. <laughs> and it must be big, because he's got both hands. How are you? You know, like, how are you holding your hymnal, Bill? I don't know how you're doing this. I'm not kidding. Okay, now take that and add it to a personality type that really isn't an extrovert at all, but really actually is an introvert. I do not like to stand out in the crowd. I like to just blend in. 
No, I'll give somebody else the spotlight. I don't, I don't, not only do I not need it, I don't even want it. Seriously. And I'll tell you, and I'll just use hand-raising as one example because you see all these other examples in the Bible. Kneeling, okay, that would work just as well for me. Clapping, all right, that's a little easier. Sitting, standing, bowing, dancing. Dancing? I am the most rhythmically challenged person you've ever met. Thank you. She knows. She knows. I think it's one thing to say, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. It is another thing entirely to say this is wrong. Where are you going to find that in the Bible? God not only receives David's worship here and that of everybody else who is following his lead, dancing indecently, at least according to his wife, certainly even violating the standards of modesty of his day by the way that he worshiped with all his might. But he comes to us in passage of Scripture after passage of Scripture after passage of Scripture, and he says, kneel before the Lord, stand before the Lord, shout to the Lord, sing to the Lord, be silent before the Lord, stretch your hands out in prayer as if to offer yourself in total surrender with them open, saying, God, it's all yours, and I am physically expressing the reality that's going on in my heart as I'm worshiping you in this moment, and stretch them out in prayer also, as if to say, I am anticipating that you will answer these prayers. I'm, I'm, I'm stretching out my hands as if figuratively to say, my heart is in a posture in which I'm ready to catch your answers. Stand before the Lord in the benediction of the Lord where the anointed pastor of the Lord stands up and from the word of the Lord gives to you his blessing and stretch out your hands as the people of old have done, as Christians have done for thousands of years to receive that blessing, to physically express that that's the posture of your heart. Raise your hand and ascribe honor unto the Lord and bless the Lord with your body as well as your lips and with your mind. Verse after verse, verse after verse, verse after verse, verse after verse. Don't ever get in a debate on this with somebody and go, you know, I just think that's wrong. Hey, it may not be your preference and maybe you're not comfortable with it, I understand that of all people like I get it, but it sure isn't wrong. So anyway, here's how it came down for me. Uncomfortable me, likes to blend in me, already has to stand in the front row me, then has to get up here me, asked myself a question that I didn't want to ask, and the question was not why should I do this? The answer to that, I hope, is very obvious. The answer to that is because Christ my King deserves the fullest expression of my worship. And in His Word, at the very least, He encourages it. There is very, it's very difficult to get around the fact that in the Bible, worship is a full being experience, and that includes, well, everything, doesn't it? The fullness of your being. The question was, why don't I do this? And here's what I had to acknowledge before the Lord. He already knew it. I just needed to say it in front of him so that he knew that I knew it. There are times, or there were times in worship, where I, I really kind of wanted to do that. And I kind of wanted to say, you know what, Lord? Be blessed. You know, receive honor from me. I, I want your blessing, and, and I feel moved in my heart to, you know, maybe express that in the front row. <laughs> like this. 
And I didn't do it, and here's why. I valued your opinion and my own more than his. There you go. So chew on that one. Trying to share the wealth. All right, here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that if you don't raise your hands in worship that your worship stinks. You know, it's just somehow inferior to the person next to you who's going all in like this. Just like I'm not saying that the person who's dancing around and is all kinds of expressive has a worship that is superior to yours. Not saying that. You can be seated and silent and motionless and in the spirit and in the moment be the most profound worshiper in all of the room. And you can be the most expressive person in the room and be the farthest one from the Lord too. This is between you and God 100%. But where I'm pushing you, where I'm challenging you, is really do make sure that it is between you and God 100%. Really do make sure that it is His Word, His opinions, His guidelines, His Spirit, His promptings that are governing over you, no matter how you express your worship. Hands raised, hands clapping, hands in your pocket. I don't care. Sit, stand, kneel, dance. Dance would be a little odd here. We do, need, we do have community sensibilities to respect, but okay. Shout, sing, silence. Be sure you do whatever you do or don't do whatever you don't do. Because He's the one leading you. He's the one that you are overwhelmingly concerned with. Because in the final analysis, guys, if we learn anything from this story, it is that our king's opinion of our worship is the only one that matters. And good grief, he takes it seriously. Wow. And then lastly, he says, you know what else? Before you close, don't judge one another's worship. Don't make assumptions about someone else's heart. Don't do it. And I want to pause and say, look, before we look at this, I don't think that's an issue here. I honestly and really and sincerely don't. But it is part of the passage. And so here's what happens. Verse 16. It says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul and the wife of David, looked out of the window of the palace of David. So geographically, and geography matters here again, She's elevated above David. She's looking down on David. But the point is not just with her eyes. She's looking down on him with her heart. Ever do that? You know, like you're this guy and this guy's over here. Woo! And you're thinking, golly, man, you know, rein it in. Good grief. Holy Toledo. What, you know. Or you're this guy, right? Or you're, no, wait, you're this guy, and then you're looking at this dude and going, hey, are you alive? Hey, are you awake? Hey, are we in the same room? Are we singing the same songs? Like, what's your deal, man? As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, the wife of David, looked out of the window of the palace of David, down at David, and not just with her eyes. And she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and probably showing some parts of his leg, which violated the standards of modesty and decency of her day, at least as she saw it. And so she despised him in her heart. And then later that day, David comes home, lucky guy that he is. 
And we read in verse 20, later that same day, David, who's blessed the nation already now, comes home to bless his household. Now just stop there for a minute. What wife would not want that? What wife would not want her husband to lead the home like this? To bless his wife, to bless his children, to lay hands on them, pray for them, lead them. I mean, good grief. He comes home to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David because she's got something on her chest that she cannot wait to get off her chest. So lucky him. And she said, sarcastically, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. I think she takes David's finest moment and misses it entirely. I really do. Here is a man who so loves the Lord that he is willing to be undignified before every person that means anything to him in life, if that's what the Spirit leads him to do in worship. I'm sorry, but that's leadership. That is leadership of a nation, and that is leadership of a home. My goodness, the message that sends to a wife and to a family full of kids. It's not the only way to do it. But my goodness, it sure doesn't deserve her rebuke. And so David speaks in return. And it's one of those moments, I think, for him when he knew exactly what to say. It's very rare in life, truthfully. You know, usually you have this encounter and then you drive away and you think, man, I I should have said this, I should have said this, I should have said this, I should have said this. And then for three months you're replaying it angrily in your mind. Just me. Okay. He unloads it all in one shot, bam, done. Finished. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord. There you go. Whose opinion I value more than yours or anyone else's. It was before the Lord who, little reminder, chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And just so you know, going forward, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And if you maintain this opinion, well, then apparently I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Translation, quite frankly, McCall, if this is any indication of your ability to render judgment in regards to this topic of worship, then I care less about your opinion than I do about the slave girls of which you speak. End of conversation. And then the narrator gives us the final word on her life, and it's honestly very sad. She's a sympathetic person in the Scriptures. Tough. And in the context of that culture, not ours, but theirs, and in the timing of this statement scripturally, it's a statement of judgment. It says, And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Guys, our king's opinion of our worship is the only opinion that matters. Period. That's it. And so whose opinion regarding your worship 
matters most to you? What governs and dictates what you do and don't do in the context of a worship service like this? Or of your personal worship? Or of times of devotion maybe with your family? Or with what you do with your community group? Because it ought to be the opinion of your king that guides you. And it ought to be His Spirit who leads you to do whatever you do or not, do whatever you don't. And then lastly, don't judge anyone else's worship, okay? I really don't see that as an issue here. But if it is with you, then work that through with the Lord. Let Him ask you the hard questions. Put the uncomfortable you out there and say, okay, I know what this is the issue. And let Him work it through with you because He deserves your worship. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that we find in our Savior a King who is worthy of the full expression of our being in worship. God, we have a Deliverer who cannot be defeated and indeed who has for us already defeated sin and death and absolutely everything else. We can sing with confidence that we win in the end, and not by anything that we have done, and in fact, in spite of everything that we have done and, and continue to do. We have a victor, and His name is Christ, and He has set us free from sin and death, and incidentally also from the opinions of everyone else but Him. Lord, who is there to impress? We belong to You. So work that out practically in our lives and in our hearts. Impress upon us the encouragements of Your Word and its dictates. Let us be reminded of who this day is about and let us live it out as we rest and as we gather together as a community of faith week by week to worship the true and the living God. Let us do these things to your glory, Lord, and let us experience by your goodness the blessings thereof we ask in Christ's name. Amen.